The reading is from Matthew 5, 27 to 30, and it's on page 969, and it's about adultery. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Sue. Well, good evening, everyone. Good evening. Great to, to see you all. Um, just uh, um, before we begin, a couple of um, comments by um, way of introduction, which I think are necessary before we sort of delve into something uh, like this topic. Um, first of all, uh, sex, adultery um, will have been massive issues for all of us in some form or another here tonight, either directly or indirectly. Um, You may be going through something here tonight um, that nobody else knows about. Um, It may be a very live issue for you tonight. Um, Or it may be that um, it is something that's happened in the past, that there's a lot of wounds surrounding um, this that you've never really spoken about. For others, it may be that you have maybe made many mistakes sexually and wonder how um, perhaps God could love you, wonder how God could um, forgive you for your past, how you could find rest. Well, please can I encourage you to, to really listen in, uh, really listen in and know, uh, please know that God is always ready to forgive. He's always ready to forgive and to restore for those who come to him through Jesus. So that's the first comment I want to make. I really want you to hear that tonight first. And the second comment that I want to make really is maybe maybe you're here and you're new and you've come into church today and you think, what is this reading about? (laughs) Um, maybe you, you, you hear Jesus' words and you're already thinking in your head, just as I thought, Christians are really uptight about everything to do with sex. Please can I again just take, encourage you to, to stay with it and to stay uh, focused on what Jesus is, is saying. Um, to kind of see um, beneath perhaps what the surface reaction to it is, and as we dig down to see actually the incredible, um, the incredible depth to this passage, to the incredible difference and the transformation that can come, and then finally, um, let's be honest: this is this is hard. 
It's hard for many of us. This is a difficult subject. And I'm aware that you may sit there and you may not agree with what I say. Um, You may um, want to talk about that afterwards. And instead of me being at the back um, by the door, I'm going to make myself available over here by the cross. And if anyone wants to talk or um, wants to challenge, then please do come and talk to me. And there will be others to, to pray with and to talk to. There's um, Louis and Victoria down here and, and Andrew and you can see Neil over there and others. Please do talk to people um, who you've seen lead and, and preach in this church. So with these things in mind, shall we just take a moment to pray, shall we? God, our Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus' words. And we pray now as we look at them together, you'll help us to understand more of who you are uh, and why Jesus says the things he said. Please challenge our hearts, reveal your love to us, and direct us to walk in your ways. We pray that the Spirit will be our teacher tonight, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The Sermon on the Mount, that's what we're in, and uh, Jesus is telling his followers... He's telling his disciples, his followers, how to live in this kingdom of God. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is, is all about. And how to be distinct, how to live differently, how to live a countercultural life from the world around. How they can be transformed in every area of life. And that includes the area of sex and relationships. And on the surface, as I've already said, when... When we read Jesus' words, it can sound a kind of very negative um, view. Um, but, of course, that, I would like to say, is, is, is a mistake to view it as negative. I want us to, to sort of lift the lid on the surface, as it were, uh, and kind of go deeper and see just how, how kind of high and wonderful and, and beautiful and deep and rich and glorious uh, Jesus' view of sex and relationships is. So it's not just going to be about talking about adultery, it's going to be taking that wider view, because unless you take that wider view, you won't understand the the specifics. And I've got three points, and they all begin with P. Um, The place, the place for sex, the problem, the problem of lust, and finally the power, the power of true love. So place, problem, and power. Do have your Bibles open at page 969. And first of all, the place for sex. Verse 27 says, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. Then verse 28, he then goes on and says, But I say to you. Now what Jesus is doing here is he's building on the first statement. He's a building um, he's not doing away with the Old Testament. He's building upon it. He's accepting uh, the seventh commandment that Andrew uh, alluded to earlier. Now, the teachers of the law, uh, often known as Pharisees and scribes in the Bible, had tried to sort of narrow the scope of the commandments down. and narrow the commandment. But Jesus here builds on it. He accepts it and builds on it. So to understand what Jesus is saying, we need to go back, um, in a sense, to the basics of, of the place um, for sex. And Jesus is setting the principle in place here. The place for sex is only inside a covenant 
It's inside a covenant, a, a marriage covenant. Now, what is a covenant? A covenant is not a word we use particularly a lot these days. It's a difficult word because there's nothing really in English that kind of conveys the same uh, sense. We do use it in English, but we don't use it very often. And the word, um, the, the word does have a legal connotation to it, yes, but it goes much, much deeper than that. A covenant, uh, the best way to understand it, is a promise. A promise. And the Bible says the place for sex is inside a promise. Um, and that's what marriage is, is all about. The covenant relationship is far, far deeper than uh, any kind of legal, contractual uh, relationship. You know, a, a contract, we know what contracts, they say, if you do A, B, and C, then uh, I will give you X, Y, and Z. Um, but if you don't give me A, B, and C, then I'm off. The contract is, is broken and terminated. The relationship is gone. Now, a contract is rather like um, a kind of consumer approach. The, cons- the idea of consumption or consumer world in which we live in is it, kind of a sense of the consumer relationship. Um, so, in a sense, you, you buy, don't you, in the consumer relationship? You buy something from somebody, you get a good deal out of it. You think, yes, I got a good deal. But you're always, in a sense, on the lookout, on the, the prowl for a, a better deal, aren't you? Kind of like for, a, for an upgrade or something on a phone. That's how consumer relationships work. That's how kind of contractual relationships work. So what do you say to the seller? You, you need to bend over towards me. You need to, to um, come to see my needs and preferences or else I'm off, I'm, uh, I'm going. Why? Because my needs are more important than the relationship, okay? A covenant promise-based relationship is actually the complete opposite of that. It's the complete opposite. And that's really very important for us to get this groundwork in place. Um, in marriage relationships, a person says, in a marriage relationships, um, I will change for you. Do you see the difference? I will adjust my needs, I'll adjust my preferences, and for you. Why? Why do you do that? Because you've made a promise, haven't you, to love somebody. You've made that promise to give of yourself. What do you say in a marriage service? You say, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer. The relationship is more important than my needs being met. That's the complete opposite from a contractual or a consumer-type relationship. And remember... Remember this, we live in a very consumer culture, don't we? We live in a consumer culture. Everything is based around that. It shapes you, whether you realize how it shapes you or or not. It shapes the way you see everything, the way you interact with everything. It's not therefore surprising, is it, to note that that does affect our attitudes towards sex and relationships. It's got to, it's bound to, because that's the culture in which we live. So a covenant relationship is the place for sex. The place, that's the P, place. <laughs> a place of, of mutual giving. 
And the Bible is quite clear on this. And Jesus is, is um, stepping into this, assuming all that. That's what he's assuming when he starts talking about adultery. Jesus is assuming sex in that context. And if we follow God's plan, if we actually follow what God desires for sex, then that gives us a great sense of security, doesn't it? If you think about it, the security that that brings, because you can really be yourself, there's no kind of pretending, there's not trying to be something that you're not. Uh, Go back to, if you think of the consumer view of sex, what happens is you're always kind of putting yourself out there to market yourself because that's what we live in, a market economy, isn't it? And how that affects us. We're always trying to sell ourselves in some way to the opposite person. But in a covenant relationship, it gives you a real sense of security because you know that that doesn't matter. You just give yourself to somebody. Um, It's not based on whether you get anything in return. Until death us do part, I think, as the marriage service says. So there's a great security in that, but there's also a great freedom as well in it. If you're only in a relationship, in a sense, to feel good, if, you, if you're wanting to only feel good, to have your own needs met, sexual or otherwise, uh, you're, off of, you're off, aren't you, when, when things get difficult, things get Um, tough. What is that? Well, in a sense, that is a slavery, isn't it, of itself? There's a slavery to your feelings. Um, You become uh, a slave to your feelings. No freedom comes through that. Um, Feelings, of course, about a relationship come and go. How you feel is affected by all kinds of things, isn't it? By how you feel that day, um, it's fe- affected by your chemistry, the, the physiology of you, your psychology of you. It's affected by your friendships, how you feel. It's also affected by what you watch. Maybe you've watched a movie that day, and that's a really deeply affected you. Affected in all kinds of different ways. Uh, and um, uh, and so, if we really want to be free from this, what do we need to do? We need to make a promise. Because that's what a covenant is. We make a promise. I will love you. That's one of the things that the British get right and the Americans get wrong. Because in the American service it says, I do. Isn't it? But in in our British service it says, I will love you. Make a promise. That's how to be free of feelings. So all this is by way of groundwork. Um, Let's get back to sex. I thought I'd never say that from the front of a service. <laughs> How does this all apply um, to sex? Well, sex is not, some, not a consumer thing. It's not a consumer thing. It's not a contract thing, is it? It's actually a covenant thing, and therefore it belongs inside a covenant promise. But today, of course, sex is taken out of that and seen much more as a, something you consume... What you get, uh, you get it when you can, how you can, to meet your needs. And that's actually not the way that sex is designed, because it's designed to be inside a covenant, a promise. Now that means, when you make a covenant, and you make a promise, 
Sex becomes the sign of that covenant. Um, Whenever God makes a, a covenant with his people, what does he do? He gives them a sign, doesn't he, of something. So when um, God made a covenant about uh, not uh, destroying the world in the flood, he gave them a sign, didn't he? He gave them the rainbow. He gave them a sign. And this is the same sense of what sex is about. It is the covenant sign of the relationship. And therefore, it's very, very painful. Very, very powerful. Sex becomes the external visible sign of the inward visible reality. Sex is the external physical symbol of internal reality. Sex is therefore very powerful. Very, very powerful. Because it's the way of saying to your spouse, your husband or your wife, I am completely yours. I am completely yours, 100%. I am totally committed to you. So sex is a sign. What's it a sign of? It's a sign of what I've done with my whole life. So when two people get married, what happens is they become one, don't they? I give up my independence to become one flesh. That's what the Bible says. That's what Jesus talks about in other places. To become one flesh. And that one fleshing is not just sexual, it's everything, it's a whole life, it's, it's economic, it's, uh, it's to do with our, our social, social dynamics, our financial dynamics, it's all of a oneness around all those things, everything. So when you have sex outside of that covenant, a marriage, you're asking in a sense someone to do with their body, what you're not doing with the whole of your life. Yes? I hope we see that. You're saying, let's do physical oneness, but I'm not interested in whole life oneness. C.S. Lewis uh, writes um, tremendously well on this in Mere Christianity. He puts it like this, probably better than I can put it. He says, The monstrosity of sexual intercourse outside of marriage is that those who indulge in it are trying to isolate one union, sexual, from all other kinds of union, which are meant to go along with it and make up the total union. The Christian attitude doesn't mean that there is anything wrong about sexual pleasure, it means that you mustn't isolate that pleasure and try to get it by itself any more than you ought to try to get the pleasure of taste without swallowing and digesting by chewing things and spitting them out again. The place for sex is inside a covenant, inside a promise, inside a marriage, a marriage union, and God's intention was that sex would be, if you like, the first celebration of that union. So in a sense, every time two two people who are married come together, it is a celebration, it's a re-celebration of that marriage union. It's like a a kind of celebration, a renewal ceremony of that very act, of that very union. You're giving yourself over and 
again to that person as a sign pointing to the very fact that you have been made one in every single other area of your life. Now, without that, sex can be, and I'm sure many of us have experienced it, can be deeply damaging if it's outside of that covenant. Because you're doing the physical oneness without the complete oneness in other areas of our lives. In a sense, you're ripping apart them from each other. And when you rip something, it's painful, isn't it? And it always ends badly. And it's deeply destructive. I'll give you some examples um, later. But for now, Jesus wants us to see, first of all, that sex belongs in the place of a marriage covenant. So that's only point one, and I know the time is going, but it's really important to get that in place because of what then Jesus says in the next um, sentences. The second P, the problem, the problem of lust is real. Verse 28, you might look at it with me. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus uses a very specific word here for lust. It doesn't mean sexual desire. He's not, if anyone looks sexual desire, um, has committed adultery. No, he's saying, if anyone looks lustfully, and that's a very specific word. Jesus isn't having a go, because when we read it, we could think, well, Jesus is just having a go at sex, isn't he? No, he's not. He's not having a go at sexual desire per se. Um, Sex is a good thing. Sex is a God-given thing, created by God. So, for example, if you go to Genesis chapter 2, and you uh, read about Adam and Eve, we find that they're in the garden, and they're naked before each other. And when Adam sees Eve, he he bursts into song uh, about Eve. God is there, created the creation, and it's a great celebration, that union. Um, so it's a good thing. You only need to look at Song of Songs, which I used to do when I was a boy, when I was a bit bored with the sermon. You would flick to all the interesting bits um, and uh, in the middle of a sermon. Uh, go and have a look at Song of Songs. God is not against sexual desire. That is not what he's saying. Jesus uses a specific word, lust, And that word lust is always connected with um, idolatry. Idolatry, making um, sex into an idol. Um, And making, putting anything in the place of God is an idol. It can be a thing, it can be a place, it can be all sorts of things. It can be money, for example, it could be um, greed. If we think about money as an example, it helps us to understand lust and sexual desire. The Bible never says money, for example, is bad. It never says money is bad. It just says the love of money is bad, the lust of it. Um, it's the lust for money and more money that leads to a kind of selfish um, reasons for, for not giving, isn't it? Um, you just want to have it. Uh, and so you become um, greedy. You know, you, you become addicted to it, don't you? When you um, have a lust for money, you, I don't know, you, you work more than you should, you, you don't come home and spend time with your family and friends or whatever it might be, and you, it, it perpetuates you into an addiction for it, and you can't give it away because you've got to keep it. And then it starts to lead into other fantasies, doesn't it? Fantasy, I could spend this or I could have that. 
because I have this money, and it starts to affect all your, your longings and your dreams. It becomes a fantasy. It becomes the one thing you must have in order to fulfill your life. The one thing you must have. Money. Now think about that as it applies to the area of lust for sex. Jesus is saying exactly the same, isn't it? Lust is making sex into an idol. The one thing I must have to fulfill me and my needs. You must have it. I get addicted to it. I need to keep having it. And more of it for selfish reasons to keep my needs Going And then, of course, it leads to all kinds of addictions and to all sorts of longings and fantasies and your mind. It affects your longings and your desires and your dreams. Let's think about how this works out. And, and straight in there, as you, as you thought it was getting tough, let's think about pornography and masturbation. Another two words I thought I might not say in, in St. John's. The culture is... One of sex as a consumer thing, isn't it? It's a consumer thing. You have an appetite for it, a lust for it. So you go and you consume it, don't you? For this you don't even need another person there to, in order to, to have it. You can buy it, you can download it, you can do it when you like when you like. And of course that's the exact opposite, isn't it? Of everything the Bible says about sex. And it says that's using sex, isn't it? For selfish gain, for selfish reasons. Which leads to addiction, which leads to fantasies in our minds that we so find so difficult to escape. And so many of us are affected by it. And need to find Jesus and know his forgiveness in it. Secondly, um, how it works out, the belief sometimes is that you can't be a whole person unless you're having sex, isn't it? I think that's a, an area where this works out in as well. Can't be happy without sex. And of course, what you're saying there is if I can't have sex, I'm not happy, then it's making that into an idol, isn't it? Because that's the one thing you need in order to satisfy your life. And it becomes idolatry. The one thing that can make me ultimately happy. Because we know, don't we, that Scripture says the only thing that can make you ultimately happy is a relationship with Jesus Christ. Think about um, also... I think when we, the world and the culture in which we live and what that says to lots of people who are either uh, single, what does this attitude say to people who are trying to live a celibate life? The world shouts that you're not something unless you've had sex or a sexual being. The Bible would have nothing to say, to, it would have nothing to do with that. You're not somehow a lesser person. Why does Jesus get um, so direct um, here about lust? Well, that's where we read on. So look, look with me at verse 29. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. 
And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. One of the biggest um, myths in our culture is about um, sex is, is uh, in the area of pornography. And I'll come back to that. Um, one of the, the, the big areas with pornography is that the lie that people say is that it won't affect um, your relationships. It won't affect you. And of course, that's a, it's such a subtle lie because it always affects you. Whatever you fill your minds with always affects you, always affects your relationships. It affects almost everyone here in some way, not just the users. And it affects people for these reasons. It causes a kind of crushing, unrealistic expectation about physical appearance and about physical performance. That's what it does. Crushing expectations that can never be met. Many women are as we know, accommodating themselves to that in different ways, in their appearance and in their sexual performance, to styles that they have seen or their partner has seen in pornography. So we see it in fashion industry. Everything becomes much more sexualized. Um, we see it in, um, in the whole stuff around the obsession with um, uh, you know, nip and tuck and breast enlargements and all that kind of thing. But equally, we also see in subtle ways. And I, uh, there's a very interesting article I read online about pouting. Why do girls and young women want to pout? Pout, that's the right word, isn't it? I'm not going to give you an example of pouting. You know what pouting looks like. But the article says it's all to do with sex because they've seen it on sexual activity. That's why girls want to pout. Because it's attractive, it's alluring, because it's seen it. Um, other reasons. Now, this is for, for men more, especially not, not exclusively for men. Um, men often find it significant reduction uh, in the desire or the ability to make relationships. Um, and particularly in... Uh, uh, relationships with the opposite sex. Real lasting relationships, building relationships becomes really difficult. They become less interested in the intricacies and the difficulties of normal life, quite frankly. They're less likely, therefore, to, to marry. And I highlight these things in the area of porn, but there are other areas we could have um, looked at. And we have to ask ourselves, is it any wonder that Jesus says what he says? Is it any wonder that he's as direct and as outspoken as he is in these areas? He says you need to take drastic action. Look how this can damage you. Look how this can affect you. Um, don't leave it um, and say, never mind, it won't matter. It's just a passive thing. It's, it's okay, really. Don't say that. He's, Jesus is saying, cut them out. Cut them off. Do something drastic about it. Whatever it takes. Unchannel the TV. Get some accountability apps. Whatever it might be um, on your electronic um, devices. It is that serious. It really is serious. 
I remember a friend at theological college I was studying in my room. He came crashing in and he said, Eddie, Eddie, please take it from me. Please take it from me. And he handed me his phone. And I was like, what are you doing? And he just gave me his phone and said, I can't handle it. You need to take it away from me. And I took it. I stuck it in my drawer and I locked it. And he said, Eddie, I'll let you know if I think I can have it back at some point and how to go forward. That's the kind of action that sometimes is required. Jesus says as much, doesn't he? It's a matter. It is a matter of life and death. He says as much, doesn't he? In verse 30, it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Let's not leave it there, though. That would be the wrong place to leave it. There's the third P. Sex points... And it has the power, that was the P. <laughs> I wrote down points and then I changed my mind to power at the last minute. Sex is, the, is found, that the power of it is found through love. Jesus uses the word um, here for hell, which is Gehenna. He could have used other words, but he used that word, Gehenna, for hell. And Gehenna was a place outside Jerusalem, which was a, a rubbish tip where they used to dip, tip the rubbish and then burn it. So it wasn't a place that people wanted to go to at all. It was a very a horrible place, rubbish and burning. And therefore, Gehenna is a place of um, destruction. It's a, a place of arid dryness, isn't it? Because things are burning up. And therefore, it, it's a picture of something that is un, unquenchable. If you, ha- if you were thirsty... In Gehenna, you, would be, you, would, you wouldn't be, have, be able to have your thirst quenched. And it's also a place, isn't it, of unfulfilled um, longing. It's, the, it's a place outside of the presence of God as it was understood at that time. It was a place of great destruction, a place of longing, a place of dryness, of thirst. You see, we are all built, we're built to know God. God wants us to know him. And when we lose God, when we, when we turn away from him, when we rebel against him, we become separated from him. We're separated from him. We lose the ability to have our, our thirst quenched. We lose the ability to have our longings fulfilled when we're separated from, from God. Jesus is saying sex outside of that covenant um, marriage that we talked about points to that. And you see, sex is a sign, uh, a sign of that covenant with God. It points to, not only um, to the place of sex inside marriage, but it points us to another covenant. It points us to the oneness, to the intimacy to fulfilled longings and dreams and thirst that can only be satisfied and found in Jesus Christ. That's what it points to, ultimately. And sex outside a covenant destroys that ability to be yourself, to be secure and to be free and to be satisfied. It destroys that. It will just leave you thirsty for more. It will just leave you dry. If lust and sex outside of marriage points to hell, sex inside a covenant points to 
something much more glorious, something much more satisfying, something um, beautiful. A whole world full of love, that's what it points to. It points to where God is, where love is, and where it is fulfilled. Ephesians 5 um, talks about marriage, and it gives us, it talks about marriage giving us that foretaste, a pointer to what it will be like to fall into the arms of our true spouse, our true bridegroom, that person of Jesus Christ at the end of time. To try and think about this, I was reading uh, somebody else who was talking about this, and he was talking about um, when Jesus met the woman at the well. You probably um, know that story from John chapter 4. What does he say? Can you remember that story? What does he say to the woman um, at the well who has come for water? She's come, hasn't she, the woman, for water. She's thirsty. She's thirsty for a drink. I have water, he says to her, that can satisfy your deepest need. What does she then say? She says, um, sir, give me this water. That's a very natural thing, wouldn't it? You'd want that, wouldn't you? You'd want that. We would want that. She wants it. So she says, sir, give me this water. And Jesus replies, in a very odd way, she says, go and get your husband. Is what he says. Go and get your husband and come back. Why does Jesus bring up her husband at this point about a drink and about this thirst? Why does Jesus bring up? And then she says, she responds, Sir, I have no husband. And so Jesus says, The fact is that you have had five, and the man you now have is not your husband. Wow, that's okay. How have we got to that point? Why bring this up? Why bring this woman's messy sex life up at this point? Is Jesus trying to embarrass her? He's not trying to embarrass her at all. Really isn't trying to embarrass her. Not just trying to give her a kicking for for being, um, I don't know, a loose woman or something. He's not trying to do that at all. Jesus wants to satisfy her longings. Jesus wants to restore her. He wants to give her her real need. He's saying, you've been looking for it in men, in sexual relationships, in lust, trying to find in the arms of men the fulfillment that only Jesus can give. That is why he brings it up at that point. You see, to live the way Jesus is talking about here, Matthew 5, is... It's impossible, isn't it, without Jesus? It's actually impossible without him, unless we are satisfied by Jesus Christ. You need to love Jesus. It's a simple message. You need to love Jesus more than anything else. You need to see how lovable he is, because he really is lovable. Just see how amazing and lovely he is. You need to love Jesus more than anything or anyone more than sexual intercourse, more than sexual desire, more than money, more than anything blank that you put in space of God, more than even your spouse. Anything else that you put there will crush you, will leave you thirsty, will leave you dry, will leave you in a place of Gehenna. Jesus is our spouse. The Bible says that all the time. He's the bridegroom. 
With him we have a place. We have a place of deep, deep acceptance. A place of great freedom, of love, of forgiveness. Of somebody who will never walk out on us. Who will always give and give and give. More than you can possibly imagine or know. He will love you. Yes, he has to confront you at times. Yes, he has to say strong things to this woman at the well. He has to say, I'm sorry that you have this sexual desire which is putting in place of me. And I need to deal with that. Yes, and that can be incredibly painful. It can be incredibly hard to say those things. But the moment you fall into the arms of Jesus... And see who he is and see what he's done for you by dying for you on the cross and just the depth of his love as the bridegroom. That pain will go. Because you'll start to see a world of love that's available to you and to satisfy you and to give you your longings and your freedoms and your dreams and your hopes that will blow your mind. Like no other relationship because Jesus Christ will be, will satisfy We'll find that, that oneness, that oneness that we've always longed for, that lasting joy, that lasting intimacy, true freedom, a solid security like nothing else. When we do that, it'll transform our lives. It'll transform our sex lives. It'll transform our view of everything, every relationship. Let's pray, shall we? have a moment of quiet think and then I'll pray I'm conscious that the, there may be many thoughts many questions around what um, we've just talked about what I've said let's just bring those to the Lord now and Father we, we come before you recognizing our own fallenness in this area, that we've all fallen short. No one is right, only you are good and holy. Father, we, we thank you for the, your teaching. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his words, even though at times they're hard, we know that they're there for our good. They're for our, our best they're not just to, to sort of kick us or, or, or make us think that they're there for, a very, for our very best. To shape us and to mould us and to make us into the people you've called us to be. Father, we pray that you will give us that bigger vision of who Jesus is. The one who satisfies all our longings. The one who uh, fulfills our dreams. Father, we pray that you will help us to see just how beautiful, marvellous and wonderful Jesus Christ is. To see him as our bridegroom, the one who came into the world to die for us. A love so deep that we will not understand unless we see it at the cross. And we thank you that forgiveness is found there. All our failings are nailed to the cross. And we pray that we would keep coming back to Jesus. Fill our hearts with that bigger vision of who he is. 
that it may transform our lives. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.